This is Elizabeth, a.k.a. DJ Lizard Breath, and you are listening to Missoula Community Weekly here at KBGA, streaming online at kbga.org. This week, we're talking about the Missoula DIY scene. We have interviews with local artists Mia Souza, Rashid Guffer, Rob Cave, and Matt St. Combe from thehardtimes.net. This is Missoula Community Weekly on KBGA. My name is Rob Cave. I've been playing music in Missoula since 2012. Uh, I'm a bass player, and I've played in um, a lot of the bands in town from 2012 to now, but pretty consistently throughout the whole time. So the projects I'm currently in are Wimbledon Minor, um, Tormi, Fools, Go Hibiki, and then I have a a project with a drummer with just bass and drums called Rob Travolta. That's not super active, but we play, we jump on shows here and there. Um, what are the kind of venues that you typically like to play at? I feel like that's a really interesting question, and that kind of encompasses like the, the subject matter um, that you talked about earlier about the DIY scene and like kind of the nature of the DIY scene in Missoula is that one of my favorite parts about playing here is that um, you don't play the typical venues are like the the pattern of which I play venues at is completely abnormal in the sense that one day I'll be playing uh, the top hat which is like a 400 capacity room and then some days I'm playing a house show which is about a 20 capacity room so I feel like um, Part of playing here is being ready for anything. Like, I've played any, everywhere from, you know, like, the Karis Park to La Petite to a, to a various bike shops in town. So it's, it's like, kind of expected unexpected as far as that stuff goes, yeah. What are, like, some problems, I guess, that you're, like, seeing within those, like, scenes? Whether it be, like, specific to, like, a specific place mm. or, like, just sort of, like, a broad... I know it's kind of a broad question, but... Well, I feel like the problems I've seen in the scene, they definitely they definitely vary and they're definitely changing and some of the problems have been around for a very long time. And I feel like one thing to keep in mind about the music scene when you're talking about it as a thing that's been in Missoula for decades basically, you know, is that a lot of these problems are almost like have been ongoing since I've been there it's and it's a really opinionated question too because I feel like my problem might be someone's party kind of thing you know and it's like I don't know like I feel like um one of the biggest issues I've I've seen in the in the community is just this cycle of people going in and out people that are not necessarily leaving Missoula people that have been here for years that go went to shows at one time and that don't go to shows now basically because of like you know like there was an issue at free cycles and at other shows that you know people basically not feeling comfortable you know keeping their drinks you know unattended or just like respect levels in general 
at venues, you know, like, the, a lot of my friends have been assaulted at shows, which, which is weird to say that that's not, like, an uncommon thing, but it's, it's true, and I think that a lot of the times, one of the reasons why the scene is always in flux and people are coming in and out, you see new faces and old faces appear and reappear all the time, is that there are these, like, issues that we are trying to resolve as a scene. I feel like we're trying to do so now more so than the, the whole time I've been here, to my knowledge. But I feel that um, sexual assault, basically, is, like, one of the biggest problems in the scene. And What are some things that you notice that, like, make you, I guess, like, proud of the Zulu's music scene? My perspective as a musician has been pretty insular in the sense that like when I moved here you know I didn't have a lot of friends in Missoula and I started playing music with a few people and those were like my best friends so from from the very beginning of the scene I felt like an outsider looking into the scene so all these things were new all these things were exciting all these concepts were you know something I never dealt with before you know the the main part about I think playing the scene that's fun is just sharing these unique various times with your friends that, you know, sometimes are silly and have to deal with, like, technical difficulties, but sometimes they're fulfilling something you've wanted to do for a really long time, like maybe open for a band that you've always looked up to or something like that. I feel like the scene lately has been, like, as mindful and as, like, cognizant of itself as it's ever been, you know? Like, overall consciousness of the scene is... A really healthy thing that you know people are discussing what is a music scene in and of itself and is this a positive thing for the community and how can we keep these spaces safe because everyone who's involved in the scene I feel you know us musicians and organizers want these spaces to be spaces where anyone can go make friends have a fun time and that's what we're shooting for um, and that's like the biggest thing is like the strength of the strength of the Missoula community. I feel brings a lot of people in that normally wouldn't have a place, you know, to make friends. Like, kind of like my situation, you know, in in general. I feel like personal strengths the music scene I've seen in my life is you know I kind of came from a place where, um, in a lot of senses, you know I. I was going to school, I was trying to go to school in Bozeman for a while, and then it didn't work out, and then I moved to Missoula to go to school, and that didn't work out, you know, and I was reaching, kind of reaching for straws, looking for a reason to stay, trying to find a job, trying to find a place here, and it was about seven months after I moved here, where I was invited to my first show, and I feel like my friend, my friend Mikey, who was in a band called Needlecraft in Tropical World, um, she invited me to my first show, and I think from the very first show I went to, my mission had not become how do I stay in Missoula, or what am I doing with my adult life, it became how do I become a part of this music scene, how do I find people to play with, how do I, you know, get to the point where I can be an artist again, and it's kind of interesting because I, I've had, I was diagnosed with a mental illness when I was 18, and I was going through a lot of recovery, you know, and the, the the scene indirectly or, you know, directly or whatever kind of helped me out. And, you know, when I got sick when I was playing boys, the scene definitely, like, 
was almost nurturing in the sense that people were so encouraging and people were so positive and people did not want to see me, you know, kind of fade away, but they wanted to support whatever I was doing. And that was a great environment to persevere in. To be an open, like, bi musician in Missoula, it's it's an interesting perspective because I always, like, being, like, someone who is a mental health advocate, I've always, like, kind of put that as a priority for me. And, like, being a queer person is very important. Being proud is very important. And being comfortable to share those things in the scene is very important too I feel that Missoula is a place where you know that was the first time where I really could be proud about who I was that I could be a transparent you know queer musician that has a mental illness and that's trying to be a strong advocate for queer people with you know not just queer people with mental illnesses but queer people and people that have felt you know discriminated against or that feel like their voice isn't loud enough um, you've heard about Eat Strike, right? Called I've Eat heard Strike. of them, but for our listeners, can you give, can you give so, them a background? Eat Strike was the first band I was in that really dealt with queer, queer issues uh, as a part of its kind of like mission statement. If there is a mission statement, there was no official statement. We were a queer band, you know, half of us were queer than the other half were not, but we still wanted to be very proactive in, you know, the LGBTQ plus community. Me coming out as a bi person, you know, after all my experiences with mental illness, I feel like part of me blossoming as a queer person was blossoming here as a musician as well, you know, and I felt like this was a good place where I could do that without, you know, worrying about what a conservative town would think about, you know, me as a queer person playing bass in rock and roll bands or whatever. So I, I feel like the DIY is almost like this, and like DIY culture is almost this in a nutshell. It's taking a space and then wherever it may be and then, you know, from the ground up building an experience for people, you know. And I think a lot of it too is like the whole like, you know, like do-it-yourself mentality where, you know, you have people like instead of like I remember Fools' first release and a lot of my bands' first release as soon as we get the masters back, as soon as we get the recordings back, we just had a session at my trailer, basically, where we all have computers, we're all burning discs, we're all making stuff by hand, you know, to sell and fund tours and to, like, fund more recordings, basically to to have this cycle that, you know, that works to promote itself and it works to produce more of what you're doing. And it's, I don't know, it's really interesting. Um, and it's it's cool how, like, a lot of times, like, when you play these unconventional spaces, you'll play for people that are just passerbyers. If you're playing a house show, someone might be a neighbor and be like, I actually really like this band, I'm going to check this out. And you, meet, and you meet a lot of people that you normally wouldn't meet, too. And at the same time, I feel like the DIY community at large has one of the most active and most... And it's one of the most nurturing things for, you know, bands that are touring on their own, you know, throughout the country. And I think that's absolutely necessary and important for this culture to exist, to have bands, you know, succeed in general, you know. So, yeah. Indeed. One element, I think, of the DIY scene that is really cool is a more inclusive side where not only you're having you know, punk bands or metal bands play, 
But in the same show, you have a performance art piece, you have a poetry reading, and then you have two bands play, and it's a fundraiser for an event all, all in the same time, you know? There is a big push, you know, in the Missoula creative community to be much more inclusive and to put all the people that really want to display their art, you know, give them a home within the DIY scene. I played a show yesterday. And... Um, but during the on the same night on a Monday, there was a show at, at Red Fence. There was a show at Flavortown on the same night, which is a DIY space and a DIY venue. And then I was at the Hockey House, which is also like you know good, positive, progressive space. And it's been around forever. And the Hockey House has been around. I've I've tracked its history for like the last twelve years of. And I feel like I've heard about the history going on longer than that in that particular house, which is, like, absolutely cool. But, yeah, being a part of that space is really important, I feel, because there's just been a lot of creativity and a lot of history in, in that house, and it's really interesting. You remember yeah. the Shia LaBeouf incident? I do remember the Shia LaBeouf incident. The Shia, Shia LaBeouf came to an East Strike show. Um, Ethan Yule was playing... Um, Snow Glow was on the bill, and there was this band, which I cannot remember for the life of me, that actually ran into Shia LaBeouf and invited him to the show, and that's the story about how he got there in the first place. I remember, you know, it was a normal show, it was a four-band bill, it was looking to be a really fun night, and Ethan starts to play a set, and we all go down to the basement, and out of the blue, I see someone holding a, you know, a super nice shoulder camera, um, and they were filming the whole show. And, you know, I had played probably 80, 70 shows at the Hockey House, you know, since I've started to play music here. And I was like, this is really weird. My first, like, gut reaction was like, oh, shit, the cops are, like, trying to bust a show. Like, someone just busted in here with a camera and started filming everybody. Like, what's going on? But that was not the case. It was actually Shia LaBeouf holding a camera filming <laughs> the show. And I remember clearly having... A moment where I was like, is that Shia LaBeouf holding a camera directly filming in my general direction? And it was. So apparently they were filming this documentary series where he's traveling all over the United States and just going wherever people tell them to go and like film. So basically what happened is Shia LaBeouf was there and then people just started showing up at the hockey house. It was like beyond capacity like and it was it was insane. And, like, I kind of have my own opinions about Shia LaBeouf that I will keep to myself. But it was just an insane... It was an insane night because people were showing up. And I remember two of the residents of the hockey house were telling me, basically, that people were coming until 3 a.m. trying to look for them. And they did not ask permission to film there. Um, they put their address on a website. So their address was posted online on vice.com. And no one asked permission to use a film from the house. So that was kind of an incident. And they actually didn't end up using any of the footage from that show in the documentary. Which is a, which is another story. But yeah. It was just crazy because I was like, that's the guy. From, I was like, man, that's the guy from Holes. That's the guy from Even Stevens. It's crazy. <laughs> Each Strike played that show. Shiloh LaBeouf promised us that they would stay for the show. And they left before the Each Strike set. So they, they broke a promise. Saddlebuff broke their promise to me.
My name is Mia Souza. Um, I do a lot of things, been a lot of people. Um, so I discovered KBGA much like I discovered Missoula, um, just completely by chance. I was walking into my dorm in Miller. Um, I was up in the staircase and they have like, you know, those, um, what are those bulletin boards, bulletin boards everywhere. And big, glossy, join a sorority, huge, glossy picture of the football team, all these bright, super colorful ones. And then you look in the corner and there's this handmade collaged poster that in Sharpie just says, tell stories on the radio for dollar sign, dollar sign, dollar sign. And I was, that was all I needed to know. And it had the UC room 208. So I took the poster and I walked over there and I asked them more about this interesting business proposition they had for me and went for it. Yeah, and I was a reporter, and I did reporting for KBGA. Um, they all, they, I, I did a DJ training, mm-hmm. but I was, I, I was, you know, I was like, well, I still want to know more about this telling stories for money proposition you have because the DJ position is volunteer. What was your focus with reporting, and and why? It it's taken me a long time to understand what my style of reporting is and what I think is important to share or like I, not even necessarily what's important to share, but how I share things that are important to me. And KBJ allowed me to explore sound. I used a lot of natural sound. I mean, my first th- two years of doing radio there was just, you could see me with a Tascam, just like pointing it at stuff and using it for stories. That's what I focused on mostly was just telling stories with people that I had found. It was like really random. I would just walk up to people on the street and be like, what's up with that? Well, what do you mean, what's up with that? <laughs> what did you call it? Um, word of mouth. Well, tell me then what, what did you do then at KBGA? Because you got into booking shows at KBGA. <clears throat> well, so I think something, a need that I identified was that KBGA was not connecting with the community that it got its support from. Mm-hmm. That, you know, the like local community. And also the DJs didn't have anything fun to do. So you know, two birds with one stones, go put the DJs in the art museum, make them DJ there. And it was, it's also really fun for me to work with people. Like I love working with people and having a body of volunteers and it's music, we're DJing. It's, it's always going to be in environments that are, you know, fun and celebratory. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was just a lot of doing that. It was just being like, how can we get KBGA in the insectarium? Okay. So we're going to need to throw an event, but why would we throw an event? Well, their birthday's coming up. Let's ask them if we can DJ their birthday. See your goal and work backwards from it. And that's yeah. KBJ taught me that is that it is very easy to just come up with your dream situation and then bite, 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 work your way back to it and understand that KBJ is, n- is nothing but a series of compromises. Mm. <laughs> when I first started, there were more venues and it was a little less by the book kind of luck. And also, I'm also really good at exercising my voice of authority. I do not speak on things unless I am damn certain I'm correct about them. And when it came to KBGA, I was, you know, I don't know. And doing reporting too, you would show up to an interview and people would be like, oh, you're the reporter they sent. That's That happened to me super frequently. It wasn't even just men who would do that. Women would do that to me all the time. Yeah. Um, 
I derived a sense of pride from being able to be like, yes, I am the person they sent. Can we please go over here because it's quieter and I need to record in better audio quality and just keep it professional. Do the work that I came here to do and give you guys the product. I'm, that's it. I'm not going to sit here and babysit all of you and feel upset about this. Mm-hmm. Um, which is why I haven't really talked much about my experience here because it's just, you know, it's so frustrating that it's, it's been years of this kind of behavior. And I feel like just recently I've like achieved this sense of respect from people or people see me as a peer, but it didn't, it didn't come without a lot of hard work for that. And I mean, I'm not saying that I was disrespected while I was working all the time, but I think people just didn't believe me, mm-hmm. didn't believe that I was as on the ball as I really was. And, you know, I sacrificed a lot to do that, but I'm glad I did. When it comes to things like booking shows or doing things in the community, I I look and I see, like, will this genuinely benefit all of us? If it will, then I will put my time and attention towards it. Or will it benefit me? Or will it benefit, like, it? you know, not everything is a cause to be a martyr for, but I mean, like, will there be some benefit when I walked into KBJ? It was a total boys club when I first started working there. Absolutely total boys club. And they're all way older than me. All were playing that game, like, oh, you haven't listened to this, like, rare release of this, like, Japanese cassette on, like, re-release. Did you know that they use this, like, Roland 909 on it? At first, I tried to play ball with them because, you know, I, I knew a little bit about music. Like, I definitely knew some, which is why I was there. But not to that degree. Not to where, like, the sum of all the references I can spit to you make up my personality. So, like, it eventually became like that. Like, someone was like, blah, blah, blah. and I was like, no, I don't know that because I like to develop my personality outside of one really niche interest. On the other end of things, like, you also told me that you've experienced, like, kind of tokenization in Missoula. Well, it so it did a lot when I first moved here because I was much more outspoken about being, you know, a Chicana, like a member of a Latino population. And there is none of that in town. So everyone kind of like gobbles it up when they have the chance. And I understand that kind of, but I mean, it like, I didn't come from somewhere where being Chicano was any, or like Latino was anything to be like, you know, it, it wasn't like a rare occurrence to be a Latino person, really, you know, like I could count my white friends on my hands growing up. Mm-hmm. In conversations with people around town, I, I like will like drop some slang or something. And then people like immediately the first question people ask me is like, do you know Spanish? And that one question is very charged for me because my parents were assimilists. Yeah. And to be an assimilist means that you reject your heritage, your community, your culture in favor of assimilating to the culture that you are trying to, you know, adopt. But, you know, people are always trying to show me up or they'll hold up their arms like, you know, they'll be like, oh, look, I'm darker than you. And it's like little offhand stuff like that where it's like, why are you thinking about that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's weird. It's just really weird when people decide to pick on, on that. I'm like, OK, you're really going out of your way to do something with this. So tell me uh, just a little bit about, I don't know, like what, what caused you to want to get into, I know you're already involved with the music scene, but. Well, so I didn't feel like I could be a part of the music scene because I didn't feel like I was a musician in the same way that was quote unquote required. Like maybe like four, yeah, three or four years ago, four or five, um, was the tail end of Missoula being just like overrun with these like noisy punk bands, um, which are all really good, like really cool, clashy, smashy punk bands. But there wasn't anything like, like I, it just like show, everyone just took everything so seriously. Everyone just like takes shit so seriously. And it's like, it, it's fine to just have fun and it's fine to just make 
strange and engaging stage pieces. And I'm an artist of many mediums. And I mean, music is one of them for sure. But I consider myself like, you know, just I, I like to bend and shape reality and like tell people alone. Like, like when I the way that I explain boy feet is 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 it's like me putting my arms around this audience. And like, we're all I'm like, all right, now come on in. And like bringing you all in, we're all leaning a little bit closer or bending at the knees a bit. We're like down and I'm looking everyone in the eye and I'm like, all right, here we go. You guys ready for this? It's bringing people in on a secret. And I feel like, and that's more fun. Give people things, reasons to be excited about. Like, really? You're just going to go up there and strum your guitar at me? I've never seen one before. I've literally never seen a guitar before. That's my new favorite thing to tell people. Um, it, It goes to the classic, like, you know, the first thing that, and you've written about this a lot, but just like the lack of women in the music scene. Yeah, yeah there is. So what am I going to do about it? What are we going to do about it? Be the change you want to see in the world. Didn't you know, That's on every single <laughs> inspirational poster I've ever seen. And I just, I just know that people aren't going to do things like I want them to be done. Yeah, I've known that from the get-go through KBGA. I've always just had to do things my way. And it's so much more enriching to do so. You learn so much more. And I've just, I got to trust my gut, my voice of authority, build these worlds. Talk to me about all the different types of art that you do, but maybe also just like how it's all connected. Context and performance, Mm -hmm. kind of. Context versus creator. I've always been really into advertising. I love ads. Mm -hmm. I love them. Um, and working at KBJ, all I did was just make graphics all the time and got really good at making just professional-looking flyers and understanding how that works. And I love promoting things. Promotions can be so, like, that's where half of the world building at Boy Feud comes in, is just in, the, in what I put out on the internet. With, so Boy Feud is a vessel for a lot of my forms of expression. Um, I, I wanted to do promotions, so how, what, what can you promote? Oh, you could promote a band. Okay, I'll start a band. Um, and, you know, I, I do long-term campaigns that are really in-depth, that give a lot of context, so that I don't have to do all that heavy lifting at shows, that people already come in primed with this idea in their brain so that I, the creator, can rest upon this world that I've built on and interact with it in a way that doesn't need to get everybody up to speed. Yeah, so, I mean, for the we, we threw an office-themed show, and that show was in celebration printed out these office memos that were like really official looking and I just put them all over town. They were just like, because of humongous quarterly gains, we're throwing an office party next Friday at the union, um, blah, blah, blah. And like, I made this little boy corp logo and the, the boy corp worldwide. And we are so excited to announce our seven part educational suite marketing tactics for today and just put pictures of that stuff everywhere, flyer them up everywhere. Um, people came dressed in their most ill-fitting slacks. I couldn't have been happier. And all the pictures look so good. The way that I look at dress codes and that is, how do you, how do you want your pictures to look? You're going to get photographed. You might as well look good. You know, we've had like a couple of other of other themes one, but Trey and I recently, uh, my bandmate, we played the we did the boy TV season finale, and for that we built a gigantic television screen and recorded half of our set um, on a video camera that we then put like commercials in between that were just random ones Trey made and had thematic elements that you know we liked or whatever. And then at the end of it, we you know we're playing and we look at each other 
and then we like step away from our gear and then we make a motion like we're about to jump through the screen and then us in real life jumped through the screen because it was a piece of two pieces of butcher paper on a gigantic wooden frame that was a TV and just like ran to the back of the venue where we had all of our gear set up and finished playing our set um, live. Um, and it's also like, it's also an expression of, I don't know, my like identity as a queer woman. Like really, I, I talk about that pretty candidly. Boy Feud's probably the first channel I felt comfortable enough to talk about being queer. So much more fun to do it in, in a song than to like, you know. Speaking of working, will you tell me about your other work that you do at Wave and Circuit? What is yeah. Wave and Circuit and what have you learned there? Well, so Wave and Circuit is a creative art tech space and consulting nebula <laughs> on the hip strip. I started working there in the fall of last year and I'm actually, I was a artist in resident at that space. I was allowed to make a bunch of really, really cool, unique projects and do contracted work for people that include like 3d printing bridge pieces for a ceramicist so that he could make a mold of this piece that needed to be hyper specific to the like, you know, millimeter, millimeter, um, that he would then make out of a silicone mold and reuse and stuff. So doing, doing projects like that, consulting on shows that people wanted to do, running sound, editing audio, like all sorts of stuff like that, really just knee deep in every kind of creative work. Um, but I was also doing all my own projects. Like I, I, that's boy feud was kind of a, a result of that, you know, without Jay bronze, I would not be nearly the person I am today. He's like a mentor figure. He's my boss there, but more than anything, he's a facilitator of good ideas in Missoula. Yeah. I think that that's why I've been able to experiment and, and not, that's not why I think that is why I've been able to experiment and reach as far as I've been able to creatively, because when you're around people that respect you and respect your voice, you're able to speak louder and more clearly. What are the things that are really lacking as far as like the Missoula music, Missoula culture goes? Like, what are the things that are not so hot here? And then, what are the things that like are really like Missoula does have going on for itself, and that are positive things? I think the biggest issue is that Missoula takes itself very seriously, but it has no pride. Our scene takes itself very, 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 very seriously, but it has no pride or respect for itself. And what do you mean by that? I mean, everyone just seems kind of more willing to jump on the negativity and like tear down what's wrong with what's going on than look at solutions. Like there are issues, yes, but I'm more interested in finding solutions and how we can like get over that. Because hearing from older dudes like, oh, Missoula used to be so much cooler five years ago. It's like, okay, well, it isn't five years ago and you're still in that mindset. Move forward. Like, yeah. let's all collectively just move forward. Things are not the same, and things will not be the same, and things most certainly will not stay the same. So just prepare for that. And I just, I am blown away by how people just refuse to, like, I don't know, like, it's easy to hate on Missoula. I get it. It's like this weird little speck in this huge expanse where, quote-unquote, nothing happens. But something that is so powerful about our scene is that it is truly a sandbox. You can build anything you want here. People are willing to help you in any way they can. I may have all these little stickers that I've been putting up that say Missoula is for martyrs because it's true. People will do anything for you because they do have 
like this obligation. So I guess maybe saying that there is no pride isn't right because people do in this sort of obligation. I don't know. Maybe I'm like spinning out a little bit here, but like people, people will help you because they want to see things get better. I know this and I've seen it and I've benefited from it. I mean, like later tonight at like 9 PM, I'm going back to the Zach and doing a bunch of screen printing burned on a screen that our like foster, my bandmate in fantasy suite, um, did for us for two cases of beer because we're like, dude, we are on, we are like really pushed up in this timeline. Please help us. Yeah. And the Zach is being so gracious to let us use their community space, you know, after, after hours yeah. because that's the only time it works. Yeah. Um, I think just the willingness of everybody to uplift each other is there, but it's just, you know, we're not really ready to put in the work to do it. Which sucks. Do you feel like some people are doing that work and other, like others aren't? Yeah, I did that work for five years. I did nothing but that work. I poured every ounce of myself into this community. And I feel like nobody cared. Mm-hmm. And I feel like nobody recognized it because I was just such a mainstay that it's like, oh no, Mia's always like doing that kind of stuff. Good. At the very least, we can hit up Mia and do it. Like, you know nobody notices the foundational support because drywall and wallpapers put over it. So, you know, and you know, I, I just would get really frustrated because I'd see peers of mine getting all these write-ups and all these interviews like, you know, Oh cool. So this, this dude is booking shows. Um, and no one, again, like another write-up about this, like no one wants to talk to like women who are putting in the work to make it so that they can do that. Because I'm not the only person who's done this. There are, like, Hermina, Hermina Harold, um, huge, 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 huge influence in the, in the political sphere here. She's ensuring that there is housing for us. It's, it's Sam Duncan, you know, with the work that we put in for Queers for Queers for the, for the community here, really wouldn't exist without them. It's just there is so much work being put in, and to see time and time again who gets picked up for the music article reviews, who gets picked up for... The, you know, give us a, give us a look in on the scene who gets picked up to do the murals, who gets picked up to do these things. It's all of these men who are just always going to benefit from the work and labor put in by these women, by us. And like I said, I mentioned earlier how I never wanted to really speak up about it because it just pissed me off too much. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm still kind of that way. I'm a little bit more vocal about it now, but I feel like maybe if I had been a little bit more vocal, I could have gone a little bit further, but I did not feel empowered to do so because when all you see are the men getting the spots. So now you're leaving the, the foundation. Yeah. Leaving Baby the bird's leaving the nest. Yeah. Maybe I'll come back here. Maybe I won't, but I, the experience that I learned here is invaluable. Truly. Like I, I had to learn how to be on my own. I've been completely like self-sufficient since I was like 19 because my parents didn't support me at all. So I paid for school myself. I like got stuff in line so that I could take on that debt and work to pay it off and also still live a normal life. Um, because you know, what else, what else are you going to do? I want to do my own thing. So I will make sure that I can do my own thing. Um, so yeah. And I mean, opportunity wise, opportunity is everywhere. It's, really about who you know, kind of about what you know, and a lot about if you're willing to uh. learn. 
Yo, you ever heard that's absurd How my words sit and lurk and get delivered in a verse I spit curse, even worse My verse is just a curse to your ears Cause they all be getting murked I got rhymes, pretty much the only guy in the I am Rashid Abdel before I have a one-man band called Zebulon Costed that's been active for 20 years, since 1999. When I say one-man band, I mean I play live drums and guitar and bass and do vocals and record synthesizer tracks and keyboard tracks and make samples and do found object percussion. And I am also a pen and ink uh, fine artist. I guess that name has been attached to my artwork recently, so now I can start saying that I am in the fine arts. That I've been doing since high school, and in a more serious way since 2004. I also have a magazine that I work on with Julie Tompkins called Olgoy Korkoy. The first 19 issues I made by myself, and from issue number 20 to issue number 46 that came out last month, We've been working on it together. How would you explain the content of that magazine? Uh, when I was making the magazine on my own, it was science fiction themed, Olgoy Korkoy being the Mongolian death worm. Very uh, big time portrayed in the novel Dune and the exciting film Tremors. There is a original OK instead of OG. In this case, Olgoy Korkoy is from Mongolian folklore. And so when I was making the magazine on my own, I would make abstract art that was kind of science fiction themed and um, poetry. And uh, then round issue 20, our first full color issue of the magazine, it started to become more freeform. And I think that's a good thing that it happened because... It was a little bit too solo individual and didn't have enough depth and variety to keep it exciting. So that's kind of the history of the 46 issues so far. And you published that yourself, right? Like independently? Once upon a time for the first 19 issues, is, uh, I had it printed in Bozeman. And in fact, I guess it went until about issue number 26 or 27 that it was taken care of by a gentleman named Ben Hemsworth, who owns Tetractus Media, that has released a lot of uh, Zebulon Costed material on cassette and a lot of other black metal bands and metal bands in general from Bozeman and the rest of the state. And uh, sending that media mail to my house, and his family owned a print shop that was a large commercial print shop in Bozeman. So it was very cheap for him to do, even though it was like a charitable kindness for him to do that for me. And uh, it was obviously very cheap to ship as well because the media mail cost on 20 or 40 or 50 or 60 pounds of magazines being shipped to my house was like $9. So... Then it was very affordable. Now we have to come up with interesting problem-solving solutions to how to make the magazine. And uh, the graphic design and the drawing and the writing is the easy part. It's usually the layout and the printing that becomes 
difficult. But uh, yeah, thanks to Julie Tompkins' know-how and uh, brain power, we get it done. You're familiar with like the term DIY, right? Do it yourself. Yeah. Do you think like what you do, either in your music or your art, like fits into that sort of like area? Well, let me put it this way. Uh, long ago, when I was using four-track tape recorders, that I would use a stereo cable to feed into my tape deck and bounce down the four-track recording onto a, a master cassette tape and then using the master cassette tape on my dual deck to then record onto other cassette tapes the actual recordings that would go out into the marketplace and drawing uh, cassette covers that I cut out from a TDK or Maxell cover to be the same size as what I was going to put into the TDK or Maxells that I was recording onto and then taking stickers and putting them onto the cassette tapes that I drew onto the stickers as well. That was pretty DIY. Going to someone's studio and multi-tracking on a computer and using drum software that sounds exactly like real drums and not using a real drum set and asking the person who owns the record label that you're signed to who just happens to be a graphic designer as well to make your album cover and then that same person sends off your digital files to a, a robot factory that manufactures the CDs and puts them into boxes and ships them to your house and label's house and the customer's houses. That doesn't really feel as DIY anymore, but it took 20 years for me to get to that point, and there's still probably some people that would say, because I am the one that's recording all the music and approving all the art and was able to scratch and claw my way into some sort of record contract that that's still DIY, but that's debatable. And I think that digital processes have changed that game pretty significantly. Same with the magazine. I think now it's much more common to have online magazines, which I support because it's definitely more environmentally friendly. But it's just not my particular way of doing things. That being said, it's incredibly more user-friendly and simple than doing layout on physical pages and printing those pages out and scratching the money together to make dozens of copies that you can either sell or give away or put inside of like bus terminals or something and hope that they get out to cool people that will contact you somehow. But, you know, online magazines can be even more exciting to look at and uh, give you a lot more room to do uh, things in the graphic design realm that you couldn't do on paper or at least just look more flashy on screen than they do on paper. In Missoula, like, what are like a couple of things you think are like going really well and what are a couple of things that you think should change? A friend and I just recently looked at the size of Missoula and the growth rate of Missoula, and I've been here 10 years and it's changed considerably in 10 years. As far as the DIY music scene goes, though, I would say it was stronger 10 years ago than it is now. I was playing weirdo, abstract, uh, 
one-man black metal music live back then, but the bands I would play with were usually punk rock bands. And I think that the punk rock scene right now is particularly weak. Um, I'm sure that there's probably a bunch of punk rock kids that will want to bust my face over that, but I think they would have to begrudgingly agree if they had seen the evolution of it over that same time period. I think that the DIY scene is wrapped up a lot of the time in the punk rock scene or the punk rock scenes wrapped up in the DIY scene. There's all kinds of bands that make DIY recordings or, you know, put themselves out in a way where they're put, making their own banners or they're making their own music videos or whatever you want to label as DIY, not just the recording process of an album. And right now I know there's a few good bands, but when I moved here, it was a crazy scene and they had pretty much their own place that they played. There were other bands that played in the same place, but it was like known. If you're going to a punk rock show, you're going to Zach Basement. And recently, Zach Basement has started having shows again, not as regularly. You know, there's still cool stuff going on down there again, but it shut down for a while. Those kids in those bands, you know, like Thug Nasties and TSMF and... Oh, man, the list goes on and on. Shermano was playing punk rock music back then. Not heavy metal at all. Um, and, oh, man, uh, God damn it, boy, howdy. And all these bands that were crazy punk rock bands back in the day would just go insane to the point where that got shut down because it was so insane. And that's why there was the gap. But it was awesome. And they would make their own shirts. They would make their own merch. It had a very old-fashioned vibe to it you know everything changes and doesn't necessarily change for the worse i see what's going on with the metal bands here in town i see what's going on with the hip-hop scene here in town i see what's going on with the electronic music scene in, in town and i'll tell you the electronic music scene has kind of swallowed everything else up and it makes sense because that's something i think you'll see in a lot of places not just missoula it's more dance-friendly and more generally wanted and accepted in clubs. One little side note that I'll throw in here about the dance music scene, the electronic music scene, and bars is that in Montana, the sale of alcohol is connected with the bands that play in a bar. And especially for punk rock and metal, or at least what I can speak towards personally, the bigger and more popular that you were, the more that bars would want you to come and play because they would sell more alcohol while you were playing. But not all of those bars would pay you to play. Or you would have to figure out your own situation as far as getting someone to cover the door. Oh, DIY doorman or DIY sound man where you'd have to figure out your own sound setup and it's like you're making money from us being here but you're not giving us any or you're giving us this tiny token amount so that you can say that you pay the bands but you don't really I think that the most successful model that's being used in Missoula right now is electronic music where these people will probably get paid but they will make so much money for the bar and it will turn the wheels of that dual business that's going on there in such an uh, overwhelmingly, uh, fundamentally amazing way where everybody's making so much money that it just makes more sense 
to book EDM or techno. I don't even, seriously, I, I listen to some of it. It's really cool. I'm not putting down that scene. It's just that makes money. Punk rock bands don't make as much money. Metal bands don't make as much money. Even straightforward rock bands, if they're doing anything outside of what is known to make money in a local bar in Missoula, Montana, not going to do as well as a DJ. And not a DJ in the sense of someone who talks on the radio at KVGA, but a DJ in the sense of someone who plays what people want to hear. Aside from the lack of payment, um, typically it comes with that. What are some other reasons that you don't like to? I've played 300 bar shows in my life, so I know what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I'm some old grandpa that blah, 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 has been in so many bands and thinks he's so cool and is probably not in touch with the scene in certain ways as much as other people are with what's going on right now in these places. My personal reasons for not enjoying playing in bars are as follows. Drunken jerks, mm -hmm. yelling, beating up people, uh, abusing the crowd and the band equally, and feeling as though because they're in a bar, they can do whatever they like because they're in a bar and they're getting drunk and they're spending money there, and because whatever the alcohol does to them, the Jekyll and Hyde process that happens in a certain percentage of the population where they go from the nicest people to the worst garbage you've ever seen in your life they feel as though that is allowed i think also probably number two on the list would be that in my opinion music is a form of art and there are a lot of people who make music i used to be one of these people so i am guilty as well who does it with their friends to have a fun time and it doesn't mean much it's kind of shallow in that there's not a lot of meaning to the lyrics. There's not a lot of consideration put into the creation of the music itself. And it's here today, gone tomorrow, and that's that. There's no lasting power to it because the people who made it don't really care if it has any lasting power. That's fine. That's all said and done and good. But that's what I see in bars is those bands. I don't see people that I'm going to remember for 20 years or 50 years or the rest of my life. So what are some venues in Missoula or elsewhere that you have like enjoyed playing that weren't bars? I love playing art spaces. I love playing unconventional venues. I love playing warehouse spaces. I love playing outside. But there's all kinds of logistical problems that pop up with these types of places and that's what makes it easy to play bars bars a lot of the time will provide sound man there's some that won't but you know whatever it's becoming less common and they always have a lot of electrical outlets and usually their electricity is good and won't explode in your face or blow breakers halfway through your set although i have played in bars that were like that so when you're playing in some space that you found, or some friend's house, or some place that has never had a band before, or off of a generator where the only bounce back of an echo from your music is coming off of trees, it can be difficult, and it won't. Sometimes it just won't sound as good. But uh, 
it's more of an experience. It's more fun. It's more interesting. It's more memorable. I have one fun question, and then if you want to talk about anything else, you can, but that's all I had. Okay. Um, what is your favorite made-up genre of music? Even if it's just the name and not the actual genre itself. Well, I've been told that I did not coin the phrase witch ambient. Oh. Uh, there's probably a few other people that have used this term and bands that have used this as their their subgenre. But there is a band here in town called Synesthesia. And I've started calling them witch ambient mm-hmm. because it's a couple of witches that make ambient music. And yeah, that's shri- pretty much what it is. Yeah, so shriek over top of it. I've seen it. I can attest. Yes. <laughs> so that is my favorite because it's so small. Mm-hmm. It is the, one of the tiniest little subgenres of music you will probably run into. And we have one of these bands. And it wasn't created by some record label or done just to fill a tiny niche. It just happened. And we just happened to have one of these bands. So go synesthesia. I'm one of the founders of The Hard Times, a satirical music website. I've been involved in the DIY punk scene my entire life. I'm actually in the process of cleaning out my garage right now to set up a new Hard Times merch business. And uh, I found these CDs of my first ever punk band, which I made in high school, called Skull Stomp. And we made these DIY. So I guess I've been involved in it for pretty much my whole life. What kind of band was Skull Stomp? Pretty bad. Uh, it was a street punk band, uh, very basics. I was on drums and I only knew one beat. We were very inspired by just, you know, the most rudimentary punk stuff out there because that's all we could play. Um, I also have our 08 tour demo here, which is a mini disc. Do you guys remember mini disc? got free ones when I got a new pair of shoes once, I remember. Yeah, we came out with an 08 tour demo on a mini disc. And in that tour, I believe, yeah, I was still in high school. I was a junior in high school. And we drove, I think it was 14 hours straight to play in Arizona with raw power. But it was worth it. The venue had a dirt floor and no stage. Uh, it was a really good time. I still have friends I made from that show. So I also read a little bit um, in an interview you did. You also made a zine when you were in college. Is that right? Yeah. I yeah. actually found some copies of that zine while cleaning up my garage, too. My zine was called Punks, Punks, Punks. I think I started it in college. Yeah, I was living in Oakland, and I was going to a lot of shows, and I just really liked interviewing bands and learning about different my friends and musicians and stuff. And uh, it's actually a very weird zine because it's all comedy-based. Um, it was a very bizarre zine reading back uh, through it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's actually that was the first punk website I ran was punkspunkspunks.com no one went to it like oh. 20 people went to that website a month it was a huge deal um and it was just like a website for my own zine which i updated i think sporadically about just like reviews of shows and stuff just like nerdy punk scene kid stuff what do you think they contribute to like music scenes in general well zines zines along with uh stuff like labels they're kind of like cultural like culture creators you know also bands that dedicate a lot of time to putting on shows and 
uh, promoting younger bands. They're kind of like they become like these hubs for DIY culture. And I think zines are like that. So my zine was about it was called the Valley Punk Perspective. I was from a like a suburb called the Valley that we called the Valley. It was a collection of towns. And um, so my idea was to put a spotlight on my friends and those bands and those voices. Um, and so, I mean, I think you make a zine because you're kind of trying to outline a community almost like you're trying to define boundaries around a community. And I think my zine did a pretty good job of that for a while. I think bands that I was interviewing and hyping up, uh, we'd put them on shows. And I think it created a little like micro scene just for a second. Um, so I think that's why people do it. I was curious um, kind of about how you found your voice uh, as like kind of a comedic thing with that is definitely a fundamental of hard times. Um, sure. Where does like humor play a role in kind of the zine style writing? Yeah. So I grew up in the Bay Area punk scene, right? And it's uh, not the most humorous place, right? So we have Maxim Rock and Roll and we have Gilman Street and we have all these pretty like self-serious elements of punk. Um and my general personality was always just to be a goofball, to make people laugh, to relieve tension through comedy. And so I was always just as a young kid and as a punk, just uh, telling jokes, making people laugh. And my punk scene um, had a huge comedy bent to it. Like uh, all the show reviews, I kept track of people's punk points. And you did like a good stage dive, I would give you punk points. And if you did something uh, arbitrary, I would take your punk points away. And then I had in the back a list of all the names and people's punk points on them. And it was all just like a satirization of how people have seen cred or whatever. So, I mean, that's kind of just been, it's kind of just who I am. You know, I never went to um, comedy school or took a comedy writing class or any of those things. I was a journalist uh, after I did my zine and I would write articles. And if you're just putting words together all day, you just eventually, I think my brain just gets bored and I try to make them funny. And then I noticed that the articles that I would do that got the most positive feedback were the ones that made people laugh. So then eventually I thought, well, maybe I should just own my own website and make articles that make people laugh. And that's kind of the seed of the idea that became the hard times. Curious, what is your favorite hard times headline you have written? Hmm, that I've written. Or somebody else. What's your like favorite headline, I guess? You know, the one that always pops up to me is just uh, punk on Shark Tank wants $25 to make some pins. I, I that one's by Mark Roebuck. And I just love that one. The simplicity of it, the small mindedness of the punk and the 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 idea of going through this big process to raise $25, it always makes me laugh when I see that one. There was actually a really good one that came out just a couple days ago. Um, and it was something like, man travel uses time machine to travel back to September 10th, 2001 to tell everyone that Weezer sucks now. And I thought that was really good. So you mentioned that Hard Times writes a lot about like issues or just funny things happening within like punk scenes. Uh-huh. In your experience, um, what are some of like the serious things you're noticing, like serious issues within DIY scenes? So I think DIY scenes, I mean, I grew up in them and they can be very empowering. And uh, you can find people who love creating things and love figuring things out. And I think that idea of complex problem solving of saying, hey, I want my band to have a record that's on vinyl, but also can stream all over the world. And I want to figure out how to get my four crazy friends to New York to play this festival and using your limited resources, figuring out how to do all that stuff, especially at a young age. I think that can be a really ripe, uh, fertile breeding ground for just like lifelong creativity. And I think business success, honestly, I think if you can figure out how to do those things, you can figure out how to uh, apply a lot of them to business later on. Uh, but I think there's another element of that, which is 
there's a little bit of a like a groupthink herd mentality that goes on. They can be kind of dangerous places. You know, they're a little cult like. And if if everyone starts going one direction and you don't want to go that direction, you can very quickly be exiled. And sometimes that comes along with violence. Uh, sometimes it's physical violence. Sometimes it's like social violence. Um, a little bit of a mob mentality and hard to make sure that the mob's always going in the right direction. There's also uh, some like predators uh, who prey on people who get attracted to those scenes because um, maybe they don't have a great home life or they're not very confident or they have some sort of uh, self-esteem issues and they, they find these leaders. But unfortunately, a lot of times those people who are like scene leaders and, and lure those uh, kids into things are are very uh bad people with not very great morals and you know the best case is that they lead you into some crazy political view i mean that's fine whatever you can grow out of that but um there's a lot of people who just you know in the punk scene i was growing up in there was a guy uh his name was rich uh guterres or something uh forget how to pronounce his last name but he was a well known for being like a scene leader and calling people out and uh, making sure everyone knew that this guy or this person or this woman was exiled because they did X, Y, or Z. And then it turned out that he was pretty much using all that credibility to get women to believe him and then uh, sexually assault them. So I've seen that happen quite a few times. And it's pretty sad because you really think about the people who are attracted to these scenes are vulnerable. And then there's people who are preying on them and the vulnerable people don't have a great support system to turn to when that happens. The punk scene is their support system. Um, so usually whenever uh, I see DIY scenes now, I'm actually pretty uh, suspicious of the people who are uh, directing the herd. I think they're usually pretty ill-intentioned people. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, we definitely kind of run into the, the these, these dilemmas kind of... Um, definitely pinpointed since it is a small community here and mm -hmm. there's just people who if um i'm now i'm just very suspicious of people who are always positioning themselves as you know someone that everyone can trust or a very good person like they have a very public persona about themselves even if it's just within this scene of you know 200 people or whatever you know um i don't know sometimes those people sure they're good people but i feel a lot of times that even that tiny little ounce of power they really it goes to their head and they abuse it. Um, so yeah, I've, I've, I guess I sound a little jaded, but I've been involved in DIY scenes for long enough to see that uh, pattern kind of repeat once or twice. So seems like it's especially hard in the music world sometimes for us to like kill our darlings. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, that's absolutely a whole other element to it. Um, there's a lot of there's a lot of like, open secrets about uh, people who you know hang out still. Hard Times just launched a new non-satirical vertical, and um, we so to so we're gonna be doing real journalism under the hard times wing and we're gonna be pushing it through our channels and uh, I think tomorrow we're publishing a piece by uh, I believe the singer maybe the guitarist I'm not sure of uh, War on Women a punk band and uh, she wrote a book about how to make intervene on when you see something happening and you're a bystander and how to make the scene safer and she had some really good advice just in the little interview that we gave and uh, I think that her book is probably filled with even more advice so I probably would defer to her my advice which is maybe ill-informed, I'm not 100% sure, is that anyone who routinely broadcasts themselves as a good person, don't trust them. <laughs> the, uh, the people who use bad words and are uh, a little rough around the edges, I've often found those people are a little bit more honest and a little bit more trustworthy. I, I know that sounds weird, but uh, 
the people who, uh, you know, go on these little crusades all the time, uh, just, I see a repeating, it might just be the Bay area. I'm not sure, but I see this repeating pattern, uh, very untrustworthy people. It's like some sort of weird, like they know, I think it's called projection. Like they know they're a bad person. So they project the bad things that they do on other people. Mm. It's very bizarre. Her book is called Making Spaces Safer, A Guide to Giving Harassment the Boot Whenever, Wherever You Work, Play, and Gather. Uh, oh, I have another question. Sure. Um, why expand to, um, yeah, like a more just vertical journalism platform? And I'm also just curious about kind of the expansion of hard times and how you continue ex and to expand and grow as you increase in popularity and stuff, but still maintain that DIY ethos. Sure. Yeah. So the DIY ethos part is easy. Um, I run the company, so easy. Um, the expansion um, into non-satirical real journalism stuff, that's where I come from. I was a music editor at SF Weekly. I wrote for Noisy and Rolling Stone. Um, I was a freelance journalist. I tried to be a freelance journalist for full full time for a little while, but it's too hard. I couldn't quite, couldn't quite pull it off. You know, I, I really, I have all these music journalist friends and I, I wanted a spot um, for them to publish work. And I also wanted a spot where uh, hard times writers could go on crazy adventures and write about it, like something that breaks the form of satire, but is still funny and interesting. The new website is noise.thehardtimes.net. Some other expansions that we're doing is we're doing, we're doing a podcast network. And um, the main point about that is just, I really, the people who contribute to our website, I like to do anything I can to help them um, beyond monetary stuff because we don't pay them enough. And I, I feel like they give a lot of time and effort. So pretty much the point is to highlight our writers and the comics who work for our website by pushing their personal brands through podcasts. Um, yeah. And uh, we have a book coming out in October and um, we're working on a couple other projects, but those are the big ones. That's awesome. Um, so how would I go about freelancing if I wanted to try to write for Hard Times? Okay, yeah. So if you want to write for Hard Times, uh, we have an open punk zine submission process, which is kind of crazy because of how many people submit nowadays. But all you do is you think of 10 headlines, Hard Times styled headlines, and um, you write them out and then you send them to ideas at thehardtimes.net. Not the whole articles, just the headlines. And then that gets shot to all of our editors. They look over your headlines. And if there's something that really pops out, something that we like really makes us all laugh, then you get put in a group where you uh, pitch headlines and you get to write for the site. Um, it is pretty hard, probably about one in every 500 submissions someone gets through, but you're allowed to submit as often as you want. And we use Outvoice, which is a tech that I developed um, with a other company that I'm working uh, that I started. And it's, um, we don't have a publish button at any hard times publication. We only have a publish and pay button. So the same button that publishes the work also pays the freelance contributor. So you get your money faster than if you wrote for the New York times, Rolling Stone anywhere. Um, so yeah, that that's a new technology that we built that we're trying to spread out to multiple publications. But really what we're interested in is, you know, show us the goods, show us the headline that we think will, our audience will love. And uh, it's a totally, at least we try to make it a totally merit-based thing where it doesn't matter where you wrote previously. It doesn't matter if you even consider yourself a writer. If you have the goods, you've got the idea, then send it our way. And if you, uh, if we like it, then you're part of the team. Do you feel that um, like the different submissions from all over the place kind of reflect different scenes and what's going on it gives you like insight a little bit into like the variety of different 
Yeah, the, all the different perspectives, and yeah. uh, that it's actually that's why hard times became popular. If hard times was just me, it wouldn't be popular. It would just be my perspective. It'd be super. Only people who looked and felt like me would um, be into the magazine. When we spread it out, we've got over three hundred contributors now who are pitching ideas uh, from all over the country, and honestly, from all over the world. Um, that's when the perspectives started spreading out to a point where it became a real big phenomenon. Uh, so it's very important that we get uh, a lot of different types of people and people from different scenes all over. Um, one thing that we started doing is we're having, we have a Patreon page for our podcast network and we have, if you, uh, contribute, you can actually be on a list to pose photos and then you get tagged in the hard times, Instagram posts when it comes out. And some people have been having a lot of fun with that. And that's been fun to see. Cause it's like now our readers, which they are the topics of our story. Now they're actually in the stories. Um, so I've been liking that. Well, do you have anything to add after talking with us? Anything we hit on or? No, just thanks so much for your interest in hard times. And anyone who wants to check it out, it's thehardtimes.net and our new website, noise.thehardtimes.net. Thank you for tuning in to Missoula Community Weekly. This is DJ Lizard Breath. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and it's been informative or at the very least interesting. If you want to check out any of the artists that have played on this week's episode, you can check out their Bandcamp links in the description of this week's episode. Keep it locked to KBGA.